Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to a Passover sermon by TBA rabbinic intern Yael Aronoff. During this semester of rabbinical school, I am taking a class called Creating Sacred Community, taught by Dr. Ron Wolfson. A few weeks ago, our class took a field trip to a megachurch. At 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning, a class of nine rabbinical students, one partner of a rabbinical student, and Dr. Ron Wolfson walked into a church. We were greeted by gorgeous music coming from a huge band. I tried to count how many people were playing instruments and singing as we entered. I figured the don't count how many people make a minion rule wouldn't apply at church. And I could not tell you how many people were in that band because each time a new prayer song started and people changed positions, I realized there was one more instrumentalist over there and another singer over there. And wow, what a powerful and moving prayer experience. While the prayers were for the Christians at the church and not for me, I could still feel myself getting swept up in the emotion and spirit of their sacred music. In the almost four years of my rabbinical school career thus far, I have been fortunate to have several opportunities, thanks to Rabbi Elliot Dorf, Rabbi Gail Leibovitz, and Janet Davis, to participate in interfaith work between seminarian retreats in Los Angeles and in Texas, and through serving on the board of the Academy for Judaic, Christian, and Islamic Studies, I have gotten to know several people who, in some ways, pray very differently than I do. After all, we all have our own particularistic ways to pray as Jews, Christians, Catholics, and Muslims. And yet, there is something universal we share in prayer. Music. Today, the seventh day of Pesach, we chant from the beginning of Parashat Beshalach, one of our most ancient sacred songs. Today's Torah reading starts with the very moment of the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt, and then Pharaoh changing his mind about freeing the Israelite slaves, and God causing a great miracle to occur, and the people of Israel crossing Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds, and the Egyptians drowning in Yamsuf. It is at this point that we reach our ancient sacred song, Moshe's Song of the Sea and Miriam's Song. I want to focus today on this song, or songs, Putting aside for today the debate as to whether Moshe's song and Miriam's song are one or two songs, and I want to explore how the sacred music of our ancestors reverberates for us today when we pray. Exodus chapter 15 begins with verse 1, a very good place to start. It's a verse that may sound familiar to you. Of course, we just did it as we stood up and we did the uh, call and response sort of chanting with this verse, starting with this verse. It's also a verse that may sound familiar to you if you got to shul early enough this morning or if you are familiar with the psukedism or prayers that we say every day. Az yashir Moshe uvenei Yisrael et hashira hazot ladonai vayomru lemor ashira ladonai ki Then Moshe and the Israelites sang this song to Adonai. They said, I will sing to Adonai, for God has triumphed gloriously. Horse and driver God has hurled into the sea. This song, or this part of the song, continues, totaling 19 verses, followed by two more verses, 
verse 20, introducing Miriam's part of the song, and verse 21, the one verse of Miriam's song. All right, all right. Though I said I wouldn't get into whether or not these are two separate songs or one unified song, I do want to mention a fun fact that some scholars are now arguing that a longer version of Miriam's song is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In any event, I want to look particularly at the verse that introduces Miriam's part at this moment in time. It says, Vatikach Miriam Hanavia, achot aharon, et hatof beyada, vatetsena chol hanashim achareha, betupim uvim cholot. Then Miriam the prophet, Aharon's sister, picked up a hand drum, and all the women went after her with hand drums in dance. For an interesting analysis on Miriam's status as a prophet in this moment of the Torah and throughout Miriam's life, I highly recommend Esther J. Hamori's 2015 book, Women's Divination in Biblical Literature, Prophecy, Necromancy, and Other Arts of Knowledge. I want to turn now in unpacking this verse in terms of the connection between music and prayer to some commentaries relating to gematria and grammar by the 13th and 14th century Spanish Torah commentator Rabbeinu Bachia. First, I want to share a quote by Rabbi Spitz quoting Rabbeinu Bachia's relevant gematria commentary. This comes from a 2011 article Rabbi Spitz wrote for Shema, a journal of Jewish ideas, called Rethinking Music Making, a tshuva for the conservative movement. In his article, Rabbi Spitz writes, as pointed out by Rabbi Nubachia, the Hebrew words for prayer and song have the same numerical equivalent, or gematria, 515. Words of prayer are emotionally amplified, personalized, and made more full-bodied through song. Now, if you are someone who is interested in gematria as I am, and you are wondering how Rabbeinu Bachia got to 515, I believe he got it by spelling the Hebrew word for prayer, tefillah, without the letter yud, while including the letter yud in the Hebrew word for song, shira. Whether you might argue that that's a stretch or not, I do believe that Rabbeinu Bachia's comment, along with the explanation that followed from the article by Rabbi Spitz, can lead us to the following question. Does this gematria reveal something about an intrinsic connection between prayer and song? As we're still enjoying the final days of Pesach, the holiday of questions, while at first glance I might have thought this question would have an easy answer, our rabbinic tradition, which so loves to live in the questions rather than the answers, does not make it so easy to answer the question about what we might be able to understand about the connection between prayer and song. In fact, many rabbis of the Mishnah thought there should be a severance between prayer and song, if not all of the time, then certainly on Shabbat and holidays. For example, in Mishnah Beitzah chapter 5, here is a list of things that are prohibited to do on Shabbat and Yom Tov, festival days, by the rabbis of the Mishnah. One may not climb a tree, nor ride on an animal, nor swim in the water, nor clap one's hands together, nor clap one's hands on the thigh, nor dance. Those last three prohibitions, clapping hands together, clapping hands on thighs, and dancing, are things that people naturally want to do when music of any kind moves them. Rabbi Spitz, in his Rethinking Music Making article, explains how this prohibition was done away with, writing that because of the natural desire to celebrate and to do so with music, the observance of the blanket prohibition eventually waned. 
Clapping during moments of active singing or deep emotion was a natural response and hard to monitor. In the 12th century, the Tosafot commentators of the Rhineland wrote, for us, who are not experts in making musical instruments, it is not appropriate to make this decree in our days, thereby removing the protective decree, at least for clapping. In terms of dancing, Rabbeinu Bachia makes an interesting grammatical point about the Hebrew word for dancing, which we find in the verse introducing Miriam in today's Torah reading in the form of uvim cholot, as Miriam, with her hand drum, leads the women with their hand drums in song and dance. Rabbeinu Bachia references a midrashic approach that connects the Hebrew word for dance, machol, as being derived from the same root as the Hebrew word for forgiveness, mechila. There is a Netflix TV show called Keep Breathing, in which one of the characters discusses this very same connection between the word for dance, machol, and the word for forgiveness, mechila. In explaining this grammatical connection, the character shares with the woman he is dancing with his opinion of how to understand the connection between the two words. It means, he says, you dance with your past. And so with that in mind, let us continue our current dance with our past. In reflection on the connection between the Hebrew words for dance and forgiveness in this moment of this verse introducing Miriam, I can't help but wonder. At this very moment of freedom, what did we, the people of Israel, need forgiveness for? Was this not the moment of the birth of our peoplehood? If we were ever to get a moment to have a clean slate as a people, would this not have been the moment? Perhaps I might want to reevaluate an understanding I have carried with me for a long time about the Talmudic Midrash found in both Masachet or Tractate Megillah, page 10b, and in Masachet or Tractate Sanhedrin, page 39b. This is the story about how when our ancestors were celebrating their freedom with the ancient sacred song of the sea, the ministering angels wanted to sing a celebratory song as well. But the Holy Blessed One said, the work of my hands, the Egyptians are drowning at sea and you wish to recite songs? I always thought the lesson was that while angels and God did not celebrate in this moment, we, mere mortal human beings, were able to do so because we are not angels. And celebrating in a moment like this is only human. And perhaps there is some truth to this understanding. And also, perhaps, this connection between the word for dance, machol, and the word for forgiveness, mechila, reminds us that through sacred music, singing, and dancing, we are brought onto a higher spiritual plane. Perhaps not as high as the level of the ministering angels, but perhaps it is not too presumptuous to suggest that we are brought to a slightly higher spiritual level, and as such, we will need to seek forgiveness for celebrating at a time when other people are dying, even if they were the very people who enslaved us for hundreds of years. And so, through gematria and grammar, care of Rabbeinu Bachia, connections between the Hebrew words for prayer and song, tefillah and shirah, and the Hebrew words for dance and forgiveness, machol and mechilah, can offer us some guidance for our prayer life, both personally and communally. You might be thinking that, 
At least on the communal level at Temple Betham, this understanding of prayer is muvan me'elav, obvious, self-evident, could even be taken for granted. So why did I just spend today's drosh preaching to the choir, pun intended? I think that even in a community like this beautiful one that we are all a part of, that is so dedicated to prayer and sacred music, many of us, of course, may still struggle to connect to prayer at times. And music in and of itself may not always work in making the spiritual connection for every member of our community. I want to honor that. Prayer is, even in communities like ours where we are deeply dedicated to it, not always an easy task. And we are so blessed as Jews to have the gift of the wisdom of our tradition, which reminds us to return to our past, to dance with our past. And our ancestors this week are telling us to sing and to dance. Our ancestors are reminding us of the spiritual power of music. And that's true for us, the Jewish people, and it is true for any praying person of any faith. In his book, The Spirituality of Welcoming, How to Transform Your Congregation into a Sacred Community, Dr. Ron Wolfson writes the following. When I am asked the question, is there any one thing that is essential to the creation of a spiritually moving prayer service? I reply, there are three things. Music, music, music. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.